Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. I'm Rachel Telford. And I'm Laura Ferrier. Today is October 19th, and in our grain headlines this week, we're going to start off by talking about something that isn't specifically related to grain production, but it is a big agricultural story this week, and that's the legalization of cannabis. Yes, Rachel, it's certainly another kind of crop that is grown across the country. Um, Actually, yesterday I was speaking with an equipment manufacturer in Fargo, North Dakota, and uh, he was very aware of the uh, new ruling that was north of the border. So I thought that was uh, quite interesting that they were so uh, in the loop. Keeping tabs on what we're doing here. That's and, for sure. And it's also interesting when we talk about the link between uh, cannabis and farmers. A lot of farmers have the pro- have had the problem in the past of finding um, some pot in their fields growing while they're harvesting at this time of year. Have you ever experienced that on your farms, Laura? Yes, we have definitely found it in some of our cornfields. <laughs> Any, any issues with the police in the past or just uh, just kind of found out what you were combining and that was the end of the story? Yeah, typically I just kind of ripped it out and left it there. And a lot of times it had already been harvested by somebody, so there wasn't uh, anything to really report. So I had to wait and see if maybe there's a reduction in, in the incidence of those or maybe perhaps people still like to grow their own in farmer's fields. Well, yeah, it's a great source of uh, nitrogen for your for your cannabis plants. <laughs> um, one of the other issues that we want to talk about today is the Ontario government has announced that they are taking some immediate steps to replace the province's uh, public safety radio network. And this is really important to people in rural communities because this is going to affect the way that uh, police officers, paramedics, um, and fire services get dispatched across the uh, province when there is an emergency. And hopefully it'll increase response times and sort of make the um, presence of an emergency known a bit quicker. So the um, aging infrastructure is going to be replaced and they're going to be implementing some new equipment with state-of-the-art technology that's going to improve uh, the way that responders can get to the right place uh, with the right information at the right time. And, And that's always one of the challenges as well when we're talking about rural communities first responders often aren't quite sure where they're going to that is so true it is uh, an ongoing challenge so next in the news uh, the Ford government has kept their commitment to support horse racing Uh, so there's a few tracks across Ontario that they have decided to help fund and uh, keep the racetrack programs running Um, that is Kawartha Downs, Ajax Downs as well as Fort Erie and Dresden so I'm sure a lot of the equine industry will be pleased with that decision. Now growing up in Ridgeway which is part of Fort Erie the Fort Erie racetrack was a huge part of the community there was you know the people that took care of the horses the people that worked at the racetrack and it's really good to see that the province is supporting uh, this industry just because it is such a vital part of helping the economy Um, I am surprised that in this announcement they did say that uh, they're not going to be bringing back the slots to Fort Erie because I do know that that added to the the revenues there and to the amount that could be put back into the community yeah exactly I live close to the Alora racetrack and the slot machines uh provide a huge um, benefit for the community by giving um, various scholarships for ag schools and um, really just supporting the community in, in, a, in a number of ways. And of course some of our grain farmers also have horses so I'm sure that they'll be glad to see this uh, return to support for that community. You may have heard that there have been some reports of corn that has higher levels of vomitoxin around the province. So with this in mind, we have Albert Tenuta, the field crop pathologist with OMAFRA, joining us today on the phone from Ridgetown, Ontario. Hi, Albert. Hello, Laura. How are you? Good, thanks. How about you? Excellent. Good. So we've got a few questions here for you today. Uh, The first one is, in general, 
what should farmers be aware of with vomitoxin in corn? Well, there's a few things that farmers should keep in mind. Uh, when it comes to corn ear molds or mycotoxins, it's not a new problem to Ontario. And unfortunately, we deal with it every year and we have hot spots every year. This year, for instance, southwestern Ontario, you know, that London, Middlesex, Oxford, Huron, Perth area are the areas of concern. While other parts of the province, such as eastern Toronto, you know, we're not seeing the same levels of, of ear molds or dawn accumulation as we see elsewhere. You know, it's important also to remember that weather and moisture, humidity, play a big, big, big part in the disease development. In some years, such as this year, as well as other years, 2011, 2006, ear molds and dawn levels were higher than what we normally would see. The persistent rains, humidity, heavy dews, say from the third week of July into September were ideal for disease development this year. If we look at the grower fields, which we sampled this year with the support of GFO as well as OABA, and compare it to previous years, such as 2006, which would be a comparable level, 63% of the samples from 2018 were below two parts per million, which is very similar to what we saw in 2016 when there was about 65%. Both years were very similar also at that two to six parts per million, that middle range of being about 17 to 18% of the samples, as well as 19% of the samples for both years were above that five to six parts per million range. So as we've seen in previous years, such as this year, 2016 and 2011, when environmental conditions are favorable for disease development, the grain industry has been prepared and able to process corn with minimal impact to us. That's great. Mother Nature sure does like to throw some curveballs at farmers in Ontario. I've been doing that 28 years at this job and every year that happens. It's something new. <laughs> um, so the next question, Albert, that I have for you is why is vomitoxin not an easy issue to deal with from a farmer and from a research standpoint? Uh, good question. When it comes to air molds and mycotoxins, they've been you know, frustrating not only for farmers, but for researchers and extension people as well, and the ag industry as a whole. There is so much variability, not only from a region to region, as I discussed earlier, but also there's a lot of field-to-field variability, factors such as hybrid susceptibility, planting dates, pollination timing, and consistency of that, that silking period in the, in the field, insect feeding, rotation, residue levels, fungicides, moisture, etc., play a big factor in this variability. So the, the more of these factors, the greater variability. Also, as farmers have observed, there can be times when mold growth doesn't really correlate to the grain dawn levels that we end up seeing, which again makes it difficult to predict. And that is why the annual corn ear mold survey was initiated a, a few years ago. Sampling and sampling variability is another area of frustration for both. The importance of collecting a representative sample cannot be emphasized enough. Since 90% of the variability associated with mycotoxin test results comes from incorrect sample collection. While taking a sample from the top of a storage bin, truck, combine may be easy and convenient, mycotoxins are rarely distributed evenly in a load of corn, for instance. In this case, 
10 to 20 probes would be needed to reduce sample and variability in the load. And in many cases, we're only looking at one sample for a complete load. So you can see how variability plays a big factor in that. But one of the big questions that farmers continue to ask for research and more information is around hybrids. And I believe there's been a number of resolutions brought forward to the GFO by its members to deal with this in recent years. When it comes to disease, we look at three components which must be present for ear mold diseases to develop. Two of these we have every year in Ontario. The first is spores or the inoculum, the pathogen, must be present. And in terms of gibberella specifically, or gibberella ear molds, the spores are present every year, just as what we see with fusarium head blight in wheat. The environment is the second. And as I mentioned earlier, we have hotspots every year where rain, humidity, the environmental conditions have been perfect during, say, corn silking, which increases disease potential. The one factor we can have more of an influence on is hybrids. But unfortunately, we do not have any hybrids which are totally resistant to gibberella. They vary in their tolerance, but as we continue to see when conditions are favorable, many of these hybrids have significant disease show up. It is this testing of hybrids under Ontario conditions at multiple locations over time, which many growers have been requesting and have been part of those GFO resolutions. Secondary infection, are other, other than through silk channel, is another area of frustration, since insects feeding birds or any damage to the corn cob can lead to disease. So there's many of these factors, you know, that variability that, that leads to that frustration, not only from a research extension standpoint, but especially from a grower perspective. I totally understand. It's not a simple issue. Uh, what can farmers currently do in the field, Albert? Well, if they haven't been out in the field and assessed their, their fields, they need to do that. Um, harvest and dry as quickly as possible, especially any susceptible hybrids or where they see a lot of mold in the field. Mold and mycotoxin development continues to grow when temperatures are above 9 degrees Celsius and above 15% moisture. So try to dry that grain down below 15%. If insect or bird damage is evident or it's in, uh, say, around the field edges or so, try to harvest that area separately. Keep and handle that grain from those roads separately as well. And when it comes to harvest equipment, adjust that harvest equipment to minimize damage to corn, to remove smaller end kernels or those that have been damaged from mold or insect feeding, because a lot of time that's where the, the ear molds or the dawn uh, accumulation or mycotoxin accumulation occurs. So clean corn thoroughly to remove pieces of cob, small kernels, and red dog, which may be infected. Also prepare the bins. Clean those bins before storing new grain and cool the grain after drying. If possible, segregate corn based on vomitoxin content to help match end use. Check that uh, stored grain often for temperature, wet spots, insects, and mold growth. For grain, with elevated mold content, consider marketing sooner than as soon as possible and, and, and move it. Avoid long-term storage where possible. Exercise caution when handling or feeding moldy corn to livestock, especially to hogs. Pink or reddish molds are particularly harmful. And again, if you are going to use it, store it or um, feed it to, say, livestock and that, test those suspect samples for toxins. Check your corn. Work with a nutritionist to manage vomitoxin levels in the feed as well.
Sounds great. Thanks, Albert. And I'm sure um, farmers can get in touch with their uh, crop advisors if they have any more questions about their uh, their local fields. Oh, absolutely. That That is uh, an important piece of the whole uh, management practices, communication with your seed supplier, local retailer, all your suppliers. What can farmers do in the future to help mitigate the risk of high vomitoxin corn going forward into 2019 growing season? Well, as I said, one of the things that we can manage is is this whole idea around the hybrid selection. It is important. But remember, although some tolerant hybrids are available, none have been have complete resistance. So going out there and and selecting the proper proper hybrids for your fields is important. And that goes back to what you just mentioned. You know, growers are encouraged to dis- discuss with their local seed supplier what ear mold tolerant hybrids are best suited for their operations. You know, I think we've forgotten one of the factors here is to reduce your risk. You know, so spread your risk across uh, as low as possible. So too many growers are growing one or two hybrids over large acreages, for instance. And many of these new hybrids, which they have not grown before as well, so they don't have experience with those hybrids in those fields. You know, so... One of the areas there would be to grow three or four or more hybrids to reduce your risk as well as spread corn pollination dates. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Grow um, multiple hybrids um, there to, to reduce that risk. Crop rotation can reduce the incidence of ear rots. Um, so avoid, you know, corn on corn. That, again, is a high-risk situation. And uh, if you're targeting ear molds, for instance, um, and concerned about them, say you're a livestock producer and you're going to use a foliar fungicide, remember there are some fungicides that are only targeting um, suppression of ear molds. And there's only two of them at this time, and that's Proline and Corumba. Um, So check with your supplier as well if there's any new registrations uh, coming in over the course of the next year again. So remember, if you're targeting ear molds, you're limited to, to two products. If you're looking at other disease control, there's many other fungicides out there. So again, you've got to be out there scouting within the season, assess your disease risk, as well as what your, your potential risk could be for ear molds. And, you know, on the cultural practices side, um, you know, we continue to see if you can reduce your residue levels, you might be able to, to help reduce your risk a bit. But again, it's been limited success in preventing ear and kernel rots there as well. So tillage on its own is not an effective management tool by itself. Thanks so much, Albert, for all of your advice and for your time uh, talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Up next on the podcast, Rachel and Megan talk to my dad, Keith Austin, and my uncle Evan. We are here today on the podcast with Evan and Keith Austin. And Evan, you are 96 years old. That's right. Yeah, and you have been farming up until this year, so I think you have a pretty good wealth of knowledge. Um, so maybe just start about telling us a little bit about where your farm is, um, and has it always been in that area, and tell us a bit about that. Well, it's just outside of the city of Guelph, and uh, it's been in uh, probably my grandfather's farm back in the early 1900s, yeah, and we have probably, I have probably been on the farm and worked on the farm all my life, so uh, uh, mostly uh, when my when my parents were living, there was uh, livestock, but then they 
both passed away, and it's been cash cropped ever since. So can you maybe tell for us uh, some of the early jobs that you would have had on the farm? <laughs> Just about everything. <laughs> yeah, You've done chores before you went to school, and you walked a couple miles to school, and done chores when you come back, feed the chickens, gather the eggs. And when you, when you talk about having a livestock farm, was it just the chickens? Did you have some beef cows? What was on the well, farm? It would be mixed. You had hogs, milk cows, and uh, yes, chickens too, hens, hen house. Yes. And so, did you have to milk all the cows yourself? No, I didn't milk them all by myself, no. Mother and dad did too, but we milked cows all by hand, that's for sure. And was it always milked by hand, or did you still have the cows when the new technology came in for milking? No, we never had. We never sold milk. We, we uh, milked by hand, and we put it, uh, milk through a cream separator, and uh, the skim milk went to the hogs, and the cream went to the creamery. And what was it like, um, you said you guys started doing cash cropping. When you started into grain farming, what... What did that look like at the time? What kind of equipment did you use? Well, it was pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The old, uh, we never had a tractor until 1950. I uh, worked for the neighbor for five years during the war, and uh, he needed help, and uh, I had got called up, but they uh, have to write in and say he needed help. So I worked there for five years. His uh, wife had died earlier, and he'd taken over the uh, his dad's farm, and uh, then he married a neighbor woman, and her husband had been killed and, uh, in an accident, and uh, they had two boys and a girl. So when they got married, then they had, they were the boy. The boys were the hired man. Then we done all the work by uh, horses up until then. But then when he got married, he he bought a tractor. <laughs> that must have been a big change from the horses. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes, it's it's quite a bit different, and it was all done by horsepower then. Mm-hmm. And so other than, I guess, the change in technology, what have you seen through your 90 years of, of farming that has been sort of what you would say one of the biggest changes in how people work on a farm? Well, the way the, the, way the work is done now is, is a big change, for sure. It's all, you can pretty near just do everything by push button. <laughs> Before it was all, you know, You've done it by hand or, or labor, sort of. But uh, technology now is, is something you can even probably have a, a rest in between headlands. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Were you, were you the type of farmer that always wanted to keep up with technology? Were you an early adapter of some of the new things that came out? Or were you the more the type to wait and see what happened? Well, we never really got into, no. We just had small... Uh, we never owned a combine, and uh, we had thrashing machines. We used to go thrashing, but uh, no, we never got into big, big machinery. And then Keith, um, 
What um, have you learned from, you guys call him Uncle Evan, I understand, from uh, Laura, who we work with here. Um, what have you learned from Uncle Evan over the years from, from farming? Oh, he's got stories. It just makes me shiver how, how far we've advanced. Uh, he's always, uh, Evan's always worked off the farm, as, as on the farm. And he does have a, he was just telling me when we were driving in here to, for the meeting was uh, him. And, uh, he has a brother, a younger brother, Bernie. And Bernie and them were out, uh, and they finally raised enough money to buy a Massey 30 with a loader because Bernie was tired of forking manure, and that was the <laughs> end of that. And Evan, you know, he talked about that, and I think he still got that tractor. It's really, you know, interesting that Evan has kept up with the technology because Evan has driven my truck and he's always been a truck driver so it's he's always worked off the farm as well but he kept that farm heritage going so and really proud of him because he advanced uh, he, you know he he's 96 but he's quite capable he was a, a very strong man in his younger era he was just an incredible young fella i think uh, you know anybody had him on his farm like he said he went out to saskatchewan and and worked on a thrashing crew like for three months and then never got paid because it was a government program and then <laughs> evan evan was a strong fella and i think bernie bernie's still alive as well so it's just good heritage and i understand that uh evan you were driving truck for keith um well into your 80s what was what was that like still uh working every day uh driving truck no real retirement i guess <laughs> just keep oh, working well i drove trucks for 65 years i guess i started off with a little two-wheeler or whatever and uh, i just stay sort of stayed with it and so on yeah i uh had uh, a few years in with a transport company and then retired from that and uh started farming my parents had died and then we got started uh, working for uh, different uh, people with farms, with trucks. Keith, one of them. We uh, we just stayed with them. We uh, after you become uh, get to be 65 years old, uh, you have to, in order to keep your license up, you have to do uh, uh, a medical and a written and a road test every year annually and i've had i had 21 of them oh, wow. wow so until you were 86 then you yeah you're, i had you're I done it in 86 wow. and it was good for till 87. wow that's that's just incredible yeah. to me and keith you had him driving your truck and you didn't have any concerns with how he was driving or? incredible driver just uh, <laughs> uh he, he put a lot of 20 year olds to shame <laughs> you know with what, what he knows but it, going backwards like evan told me this story years ago and I, I i it just makes me just think about how far we have advanced and when he drove a truck from kitchener to guelph he did that route that was gravel road when he started it just the tractor trailer trailer only had one light at the back of the trailer no left or right but you would take the wire from the trailer up in the cab and he would touch it to a positive post and it would flash the red light. That told the people behind, something's going to happen ahead. He's going to turn left, he's going to turn right, he's going to stop. That was how he signaled people behind him. And, and look what we have today. It's just incredible. Like this. And Evan advanced with it, just no problem at all. And Evan, I, I, because Laura and I sit pretty close to Rachel, we've heard a few things about you and all good things. But we heard until last year you were still out on the farm running equipment. Yes. 
And how did how did that go last year? You were driving the tractor, or what were you doing on the farm last year? We, we were uh, working the farm. Yeah. Yeah. Cultivate disc. You worked it and pick stones and uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, everything that goes with the. You were still out there. What were you growing last year? Soybeans. Were you happy with the crop? Yes, it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> and the year before that was uh, fall wheat. And it was a good crop, too. So. And then we understand that this year, even though you weren't actively farming, that you did grow some vegetables. How did that work out for you? We had a good garden. Good garden this year. And Laura tells us that you put the, do you sell them at the end of the road? Or you put your, veg, you, she thought you had some extra vegetables that you were, uh, what were you doing with those? Oh, give them away. Oh, really? <laughs> So you must yeah. be the favorite neighbor. <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, anything we don't use, I, somebody gets them. So even though you, you've taken a step back, you're still pretty busy. I know that we wanted you to come in last week, but you were busy fixing a shed out on the farm, so you couldn't come in. What sorts of other things are you doing to keep busy and active? Oh, well, we heat it with a wood stove. I cut wood uh, in the winter time and so on. And well, there's always something to do out at the farm too. Grass to cut, and you got a big garden, and you can be you can be busy if you want to be. And I, do you have any? I guess I'm sure you have a, a whole wealth of stories. But any particular story from um, when you were farming that you think would be really memorable or interesting to talk about, maybe a tough year and how you worked through that? I could probably tell you quite a few things. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> no, I can't really, you know, kind of remember one that stays with me. Yeah. And that happened about four years ago. And uh, the railroad goes right through the farm, and the railroad don't maintain uh, fences anymore and the fence falls down, the posts break off, and so on. So I uh, was taking the, the railroad fence down and uh, pulling the posts out. So I had pulled the post out uh, with a hydraulic uh, lift or whatever it is, and uh, I kind of left it because I didn't want to go any farther, pull the head any farther, because I'm only going to pull the post over and onto, onto me. So I got off the tractor, went around, took the chain off the post, took the post away, and I turned around, and we were on a bit of a, a railroad bank. And uh, I turned around, and the tractor was kind of moving backwards. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I stepped up to it, and I was thinking I was going to get on it. And I said, no, just let the sucker go. <laughs> so I stepped back, but I should have taken one more step. Oh. But anyway, the front wheel run over and knocked me down. We, we went down into the railroad ditch. Oh, goodness. With, alongside the tractor. And the ditch is half full of water. So it run over my leg and uh, nothing, no breaks or anything. But uh, I was laid up for about uh, 10 weeks. Wow. I never forgotten that one. But I... Thought it was in gear. I had shut it off, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and does your brother farm as well? Yes, he was, uh, but he uh, wasn't on the farm after uh, uh, 
1957, he got married, I think, and he was in Kitchener. So uh, he didn't, uh, my dad kind of leaned to me all the time. If he wanted something or he needed help, it was uh, mostly always me that. So did you ever have any thoughts of doing something other than farming or things related to farming? No. No. No, as far as Evan, his his mainstay was, did you ever live on the farm after your mom and dad died? No. No, okay. I wasn't sure because you've always rented that house out, but Evan's always looked after the farm as if it was <coughs> his. Very, very thoughtful for it and very um, uh, concerned about the land. Like you always rotated and things like that. You were right. very thoughtful yeah. about how you would make it more valuable. Well... After my dad died in 1970, we uh, rented it out for uh, 11 years. And the people that uh, rented it grew nothing but corn, 11 years of corn. So then I, it, it got pretty well run out. It wasn't uh, producing too good then. There's uh, nothing going back into it. Well, that's when I retired and I started uh, cash cropping and uh, we uh, put back in. We put, uh, we grew nothing but uh, wheat and soybeans and uh, we have been able to build the soil back up again over the years. Is there one piece of advice that you would have for young farmers today just starting out? Well, uh, it's quite a challenge for them nowadays just to start up from, you know, it's uh, a lot of things in there that uh, machinery, a lot of expense, big expense, and uh, prices probably should, could be better, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a challenge to keep on top of everything. And Keith, is there something that you, maybe one story you really like or something that you've learned from uh, Uncle Evan that you really value? <laughs> oh, I think uh, Evan taught me. Um, see, we used to do a lot of custom work. Evan would run my my 4630 John Deere and my 640 plow, and we did a lot of custom work. And Evan would, uh, he'd outwork me. <laughs> <laughs> and I always said he was as good as a 20-year-old fellow because he would be there at if you said it's, we're starting at 5 o'clock in the morning, he'd be there and just just so um, motivated. But uh, I think that's what Evan would, would have, have given me is a work ethic because uh, I think his parents probably instilled that to him. His dad's name was Charlie Austin. My dad's name was Charlie Austin. So <laughs> there's a quite a connection going back there. But, uh, yeah, I would always travel with Evan. If anybody asked me who he was, oh, that's my dad, you know, because he was just of that age. My my uh, dad passed away in in 92, I think it was. So I always uh, kept uh, Evan nearby. He was my right-hand man. And maybe we can just explain a bit the family relationship, Keith, because I know that uh, here we've, we've always thought of Evan as Uncle Evan because that's how Laura, our co-worker, refers to, refers to you as there, Evan. Um, but what what is that actual family connection? Evan, have you got that nailed down? Where did my father fall into your, your dad? Charlie was quite a bit older than my dad. Um, do you know how we connected going backwards? 
uh, the grandfathers were brothers. And what was the grandfather's name? What was his name? Uh, my grandfather's name was William Alexander, Alexander Austin. Okay, and I'm now you're testing me about my grandfather's name, <laughs> and I, I never knew him. He was dead and gone long before I was ever born. So I don't have, I have to talk to my, my sister who might make that, but do you know his name if you say... No, I, no, I wouldn't know either. So I guess that makes you guys second cousins or cousins along the way some, <laughs> somewhere, but still family. Oh, very much so. Very much so, yeah. Evan's a, Evan's a part of our family, uh, has been for, well, mostly ever since he retired from the trucking industry. That's when I, uh, he and I really met up and then started combine. We did a lot of custom work, and that's where I was struggling by myself. And Evan just came along, and, and I just... Never, never let him go. I don't think <laughs> I kept you on. <laughs> so you're the reason why Evan's been working past retirement. <laughs> Somewhat, yes. <laughs> so Evan, what are your plans now going forward? Now that you've, you know, you had this one year where you did your vegetable farm and and still working, but uh, what do you plan to do next year? No, no plans. <laughs> <laughs> Keep on going. <laughs> That's a good advice, I think. Any any thoughts on a vacation or? Yes, we we have been. We used to take vacation partner every year, but uh, uh, last year we didn't do anything really. We have, uh, you might say, slowed down on that. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you want to, I guess, tell uh, tell the farmers and and maybe a good piece of advice to leave? Uh, our, our podcast off with or a good story or we hear that Keith keeps saying you have so many great stories so. <laughs> <laughs> no I really don't uh, <laughs> I'm sure you do <laughs> there's nothing wrong with farming yeah it's a good good yeah. industry to get into that's for sure yeah yes it's uh, it's interesting <laughs> the, uh, there's not the labor involved that there used to be years ago mm-hmm. and probably it maybe would be better if there's a little bit more labor and not so much technology <laughs> and so on yeah you're you're knee deep in problems but anyway <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with pharma yeah yeah all right. Well, I think um, we're going to say thank you, Evan, very much for coming in and, and making some time for us because we really appreciate it. And I know we've been trying for a little while. And thank you, Keith, as well, for coming in today and talking to us uh, all about your, your many years of farming. I think that's a, a very interesting story to talk about. So thank you. Thank you. Coming up next on the podcast, we talk with our CEO, Barry Senth. We are joined today by Barry Sent, the CEO of Grain Farmers of Ontario, for an update. And I know you were out at your farm in Saskatchewan uh, recently for harvest, and we've been hearing a lot about the weather there and uh, out in that direction. So you can tell us a bit about how their harvest is going. Well, you're right. I was out uh, trying to harvest. I was out two days and back uh, on the third day. Uh, harvest is going slow, which uh, what we thought was going to be an early harvest and uh, starting out the combines in August uh, turned into uh, anything but an early harvest. We were on a, uh, a conference call with the Green Growers of Canada yesterday with, um, with the farm groups right across Canada, and one of those uh, agenda items was the, was the uh, harvest report. Alberta um, is in tough shape. Uh, two years ago, 
Uh, we had a tough harvest. In fact, on our own farm, I think we finished combining November 20th, which is silly unheard of. Uh, Alberta was reporting that it was worse than two years ago. Uh, Saskatchewan's got a significant amount of, uh, of grain still out. Um, you know, pockets similar to everywhere else. There's pockets that are almost cleaned up in some areas that uh, haven't been touched. Manitoba, in most part, is, um, is uh, cleaned up except for maybe some soybeans and some corn, but uh, all the cereals are off. So she's, she's tough, but the forecast, just looked at it at noon, and the forecast is two weeks of sunshine out there. So knock on wood, hopefully that'll come through. And even here in Ontario, we've seen our own challenges with the weather. We finally, I know in my area this week, they finally got time to go out and do the soybeans, and then it started raining again. So Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, for soybeans, we're getting to be at least two to three weeks behind uh, what a normal year is, whatever a normal year is these, these times. But uh, again, some of that same weather and the forecast doesn't look as promising for Ontario as it does out west. Um, we've still got a few more days of it, but hopefully that blows through and uh, we get the uh, soybean harvest done and into the corn. But guys are already going past the soys and starting to nibble at the uh, at corn already. So, uh, so yeah, we're on soys. We're getting behind. And uh, we're hearing some reports about vomitoxin uh, from farmers. What is Green Farmers of Ontario suggesting for farmer members and a bit more information about that? Yeah, we are. OMAFRA has uh, done some surveys uh, as they do uh, every year, and we're getting indication that uh, uh, there is some issue. I think the the issue is, one has to understand, is there's some, some good corn. There's a lot of good corn out there, uh, but there is going to be pockets of... Uh, uh, where vomitoxin is an issue for farmers. So um, what we're suggesting is you get out, uh, identify those areas as much as you can, get that corn off, because the longer, again, with these, uh, the weather that we're having uh, these days, it's not going to help the situation. It's going to, in fact, make that uh, situation even worse. So any opportunity you have to get that corn off the field, uh, uh, please take it. Uh, Segregate it if you've got some uh, some fields with hot spots. If you can uh, segregate that away from the good corn, you don't want to uh, you don't want to uh, get a mixture of all that and then go have to market it. Know what you have in each of those uh, in each of those bins. Uh, and to that uh, issue, uh, SGS, our partner in the uh, grain lab, uh, is offering that service as far as getting. Uh, giving you a test on uh, on vomitoxin in your corn again it isn't um, it isn't a uh, it gives you a rough indication of what you have when you go to market it it's not a binding uh, it's not like subject to grain dockage that you have on uh, on some of uh, your options but it does give you an indication to uh, what type of quality you have when you go to market that the important thing there too uh, Megan is Make sure that you get a representative sample of that, either if it's a bin or a field, um, because this, you know, the issue is that this shows up in certain parts of the field, and if you don't have a representative um, uh, sample, you're just going to fool yourself because um, it may not show up in one sample and be extra high in another area. So make sure it's a good sample, representative sample.
And I know that our farmer members, we often hear from them at farm shows that once they have the problem with FOM, there's not much you can do. So we're investing in research to kind of mitigate the problem ahead of time. Can you speak to a bit about that? Yes. Vomitoxin isn't a new issue. This has been an issue that's facing uh, uh, corn and, and other commodities for a long time. We've had significant research going into this over a long period of time. Um, it, it's it's not an easy one to overcome. It's uh, I wish we had uh, an easy fix for this, uh, but it, it hasn't been easy. So uh, again, uh, we're putting on behalf of our members their their licensing fee money towards research that this isn't an issue, but we sure haven't found a fix for it yet. But uh, it's sure one of the top priori- priorities of the organization and of the research area. Well, thank you, Barry, for uh, this update from the CEO's desk. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to our Green Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash talk. A special thank you to our guests this week, Albert Tenuta, Keith Austin, Uncle Evan Austin, and Barry Senth. Also, a thank you to our producer, Mark Carter. Help us grow our Grain Talk podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. So I tell them, that's what I told him all the time. Then I bought a pickup, pickup truck, and he says, what are you doing to the pickup truck? You don't need one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, that's what we did. That's funny. Yeah, you I got was... that all on tape. <laughs> I was going to say, it should have been recording that. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's funny.